when you were young, you we I started out in those um, old Southern Pentecostal churches, man, where everything was fast and loud, and it damages your hearing. And then once that happens, you got to have it louder. Just about to the point now. I'm gonna. I don't know. Amen. But uh, I'll have new eardrums one of these days, and uh, I can hear all the way across the universe. Won't matter. It has been such a, a joy for Gwen and I to be here among you again. I uh, came came back in September for the Encourage Conference just to be a, be here, and uh, we just love. Coming and thank God for the fellowship of brother and sister Ship and the whole church family, and we appreciate you so much. We just know that uh, God is working, huh? Amen. Pray for us. We. I don't know if any of you get to watch the messages. I haven't put any out in a while because we moved after the gathering there in January, and uh, we had forty plus years. I, I am a hoarder. I was. I am cured. I've been delivered. Amen. I had a barn just stuff and build storage buildings full of stuff. And uh, anyway, we built a home downsized a little, and uh, we we I just haven't been able to make those. But people everywhere watch those all over the world. So. You pray the Lord would help us. The uh, the House of Hope in Armenia doing wonderful for the widows there. And then some, I don't know how long ago it's been, They there's a lot of poverty in Armenia. At one time, now I'm not sure what the rate is now. It was like the unemployment rate was like 70% maybe. Uh, if we get 7% here, we have a recession uh, but it, it's un- unbelievable, and there's a lot of families with a lot of children who are are hungry, and they live in uh, in squalor. They don't even own the shack. Maybe they live in. Well, the earthquake uh, that came last destroyed a lot of their homes. So anyway, she wanted Sister Veronica wanted to know if we could help sixty families with children. Some have fathers, some don't. Some raised by grandmothers. Uh, to feed them, uh, we don't provide every meal, obviously, but we do help them, and we did that. Started out with sixty, and she wanted to know if we could double it. It's hard to tell somebody, no, I don't want to feed sixty more people. We don't have the money. You just have to believe God for it, and we did, and it doubled it. Now, she says, uh, this family, ten children, uh, three they're raising, the uh, the husbands. Uh, sister's children and her husband's in prison have ten children. One of them is mentally and physically handicapped, and their home was totally, their shack was destroyed in the earthquake. So we buy these large metal storage containers, and we put two together. And you say, man, that's not much. It's a mansion to them. And we put them together and totally renovate the inside sheetrock and tile and and windows in it and doors a shower and you know furniture and so forth and this this one we did now two together uh a little over eleven thousand dollars with everything bringing them out with a crane setting them down so then she says well we got another family can we can we do it for them it's hard to say no so I said, well, we don't we don't have it, but we will, and uh, you know. So that's another thing we're being in, we're getting involved in, is uh, trying to find shelter for the poor there in Armenia, one of the poorest countries in the world, I guess, or that part of the world at least, not the not the world. But I, I would appreciate you praying for these things, uh, the work of the kingdom, and that God would help us wherever He would have us to go. Things opened up back here a few months ago. I was able to get back into Israel, and then just got back from France and Spain. France was kind of a stopover uh, to get to Spain. A little long story there, but anyway, the Lord helped us in such a marvelous move of His Spirit. But it um, it was the timing. 
the the uh, I believe the prophetic word is the only message that will have any impact on people in this generation. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the prophetic word as if about some war in the, the Bible talks about or about a bridge falling in a certain city on a certain day. About what God is saying now to the body, to the church. And I want to share with you this morning, I, uh, I just recently uh, had a birthday. And I have been doing this, this preaching part for over 40, 42 years, and, but I have struggles. I, uh, I came fully expecting to preach uh, like my old evangelistic self, a message, you know, to encourage folks this morning, and I don't struggle with the message that he's given me to preach I don't want to say that I even struggle of being categorized into a certain category of this of this time because I I don't have any doubt that I'm in the will of God. I don't go to bed at night wondering am I preaching uh, wrong or am I preaching too much or am I emphasizing this too much about the end time. But I will be honest with you. Sometimes it gets a little heavy in my spirit. You know, that um, it's a little much for people, not the depth of it, but saying what needs to be said for the days ahead. I'm not talking about great tribulation, folks, but it's going to get bad enough just during the beginning of sorrows. You say, well, we don't worry about it, preacher. We're Christians. We're American Christians. That's right. And you will never find one verse in all of Holy Scripture, Holy Writ, that says American Christians are going to escape the trouble, the sorrow, the, the suffering and persecution in the days ahead. And I was sharing, we've been talking the last couple of days, and I was just sharing that it's really difficult, and it's not my place to do it. It's God's. But we always want to help him, don't we? Abraham did. But I don't want to do that. I just want to say, all right, here it is. But it's hard to get people to see, okay, right here is where we are today. Now, somewhere ahead is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that, don't we? Now, it could be right here or it could be right here. But people don't want you to deal with that space of where we are right here and right here or right here. But we got to deal with it. We got to be ready for it. And we're not fully ready, folks. We love Jesus. I'm not talking about our salvation, our names being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But I'm just telling you that we're not headed for trouble. We're in trouble. I said we're in trouble. And a lot of people, i got to quit and get started, but a lot of people are putting their hopes in November. Think about it. But folks, that Jenny's out of the bottle. It's not going back in. That spirit was already working in the last presidential administration. As far as coming against believers in this country, that spirit is increasing. It's going to increase. It doesn't matter who resides there, what is that, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, or who's in charge in Congress, that's not going to change the times that we're living in. It may help the economy. It may put a little more money in your wallet. It may, uh, you know, we may not have to drive down the road and see gas $6 a gallon. But that's not all there is to it. It's what we're facing. And to face this, our thinking has to be radically changed. 
and revolutionized by the Spirit of God. Now, when, when Lenin took over Russia, he began to work on that in a natural way, and I'm guessing somewhat a supernatural way, in the mental thinking of the people to bring them into line. But I'm not talking about some natural evolution of our thinking, but I'm talking about a supernatural change that has to come. We have to know the God of the Bible, not the God of the Assembly of God or the Church of God or the Baptist or the Presbyterian or whoever, but the God of the Bible to stand in the days ahead until the trumpet sounds. Now, having said that, would you stand? I, uh, I don't need um, assurance, but I thank God for it when I sense that, okay, I wanted to preach something else, Lord. I want to... I have no problem with what you've given me. But then, when I know in my spirit, I, I, I just thank God for that assurance. Philippians 3 and 10. that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. Pray with me one more time. Father, I, I never stand without saying before the people and you that I need that fresh oil and unction, that I have no gifts. I have no ability, no ability to say or do anything that would affect anybody. And I really need you this morning because you know how heavy this is. Not only for my heart, but for the heart of hearts of the people. But I have to. I know it's not a burden to me. It's not. But I, I want you to make this real to us today. And I'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. You may be seated. I love, I love these words. And those who claim to know say that Paul was uh, aged at the time. That he had been in the work of the kingdom for many, many years when he wrote this. And had experienced a lot of wonderful revelation and uh, demonstrations and so forth, but yet when he comes down toward the end of his life, he writes these words, that I may know him, and that in the Greek means to understand completely. And not only that, but here in this particular Greek rendering of it, it means progressively, I, that I may progressively know him. And for that to happen, it means that we will have to suffer with Him. The Greek for that is suffer means hardship and pain. And again, when you say that, I had a friend of mine, I was in a particular church, and he said, when I looked at the face of the co faces of the people in the congregation, he said, I, when you made that statement about suffering, I saw on their faces that disbelief. Not here. We are American Christians. That's not going to happen. But yet he said in Matthew ten twenty four, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Hebrew said, Though he were he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. For Jesus to please the Father, it meant he had to go to Calvary. I want to say something here. I I, I don't say it uh, with anything but love, but merely religious and traditional Christians will not survive what's coming and what's coming soon as we near the return of the Lord. 
I, I, I'm, I'm just being honest with you folks. Listen, we have a thing in this country of ours called normalcy bias. It means that, just kind of the gist of it is, is that people, they believe that just because things have been a certain way, that it's always going to be that way. They can never accept that one day there can be destruction, there can be calamity, there can be chaos, there can be a disaster that that changes our world. I, I believe COVID-19 should have dispelled some of that out of our thinking, but it's called normalcy bias. It can't happen. It's never happened before. And a lot of that is the leadership in Christianity in our our time from the pulpit and beyond have watered down the truth and the reality of knowing Christ in this country of ours. Come on, say amen now. Listen, in Luke 14, 25 and 26, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Think about it. Now we know that you cannot vehemently uh, hate your father or your mother. That is against the Ten Commandments. And we know the word here simply means uh, to love them less. But it just doesn't mean love them less. It means love them a lot less. I wonder in this time when we, if we as preachers or you and I as individuals witnessing to people, if we invited people to Christ in this hour and would say to them, hey, I want to invite you to come to know Jesus. But I've got to tell you, you got to hate your father. You got to hate your mother, your wife. You got to hate your own life also. You got to love them less. You know, what if we as preachers and believers today, instead of doing what I'm about to tell you that really irks me, I have friends who say this, and and when they do, I, I honestly cringe. They say, why don't you come and try Jesus? Come and try Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking, He is not a brand of toothpaste. He's not a brand of shampoo. He's not a brand of... You do not try Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the doorway to eternity. He is the only hope of salvation in this world. What if we were to say to this generation, why don't you come and take up the cross of Christ? He said in Matthew 16, 24, Then said Jesus unto His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. What if that were our invitation? But in this moment, modern time, folks. We just want to get them to say, I do. I will. I accept you. I I accept you as my Savior. We shake their hand. We pat them on the back. We feel good about it. We've caught them. They're in the kingdom now. But, you know, that's not... We do them a disservice. I'm absolutely convinced of that. They ought to know a little bit about what they're getting into. They've got to know, no, when you come, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. That word deny in the Greek means utterly deny. Do you hear me? Utterly deny yourself. I, I don't know how many, how many fish we would catch, but I'm telling you the ones we did, I believe we could keep them in the kingdom. And when the Apostle Paul came to Christ and met him on the road to Damascus and had that glorious conversion, and he ended up on Straight Street, and you know the story, but I, I want to give you a little a uh, picture of exactly what I'm sure would have happened if Paul would have saved, been saved in this generation and would have had that experience in our experience in our day. They would have flown him to Southern California. They would have brought him on the set with all the glitter and gold there to give his testimony, you know, about how that uh, he had been had come to know Christ and had saw the vision in the way. And then they would have told him, after this, we're going to take you and put you on the conference and camp meeting circus, circuit across the nation. You're going to fly on a private jet. You're going to wear the finest clothes. You're going to eat the best food money can buy, limo 
pick you up, take you to wherever you're going. Then after this, we're going to get you a ghost rider, and someone's going to help you write about your testimony, about how you met Jesus, and how that you once persecuted the church. And again, the finest hotels, the finest of everything at all. But listen, that's not what happened, thank God. I want to tell you what happened. God spoke to a prophet by the name of Ananias and said to him, you go down there where Paul, oh, I've heard about this man. I don't want to go. No, he said, you go tell him. You go tell him what a chosen vessel he's going to be unto me. And that would make any of us feel good about, you know, our calling, the calling of God in our lives, but it didn't end there. He said, you also tell him, show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. You let him know that it's not going to be, you know, everything's not. And man, when you read the life of Paul, I think we should do that sometimes and highlight it, not only in the book of Acts, but through the, the Gospels where Paul talks about what he went through. We like to think about the times where that he opened the eyes of the blind, raised dead folks back to life, and snakes were shaken off into the fire, and he kept living. But I, I read the story about Paul's life where he was shipwrecked more than once, was out in the ocean deep for over a day and night, floating around in the water. I read about where he said he was hungry at times and naked. I read about where he said he was cold and how that he was stoned, how that he was beaten thrice with rods, beaten to the very inch of his life. That was what he suffered for the sake of the gospel, the wonderful, the apostle Paul. You know, I believe the great tragedy of Christianity today is the utter lack of knowing and understanding God as God is. Our mindset, our thinking has been shaped by groupthink for a generation or generations. I believe our thinking about God has been formed, you know, it could have been shaped by our years of exposure in Sunday school, whether, now that could be good or bad. It has been shaped and formed by our traditions of our particular movements. It has been shaped and formed our concept and understanding of God about, you know, from our denominations and those of you who like to watch TV preachers, your thinking and understanding of God could have been shaped and molded and formed by that message that you have listened to over and over for many, many, many years. Our movements have boxed us, boxed us into this narrow view and thinking about the God of the Bible. The modern TV evangelists believe that the Christian faith is about a bigger car, a bigger house, a bigger bank account, and having a private jet or maybe two. Our mentor once said, when asked about that, the man said, I have faith. My faith got me a jet, private jet. What did it get you? And he said, it delivered me from the vanity of wanting one. Some time ago, I, in my office before we moved, I had a magazine laying there. And a charismatic magazine, and I read it, you know, not just for spiritual edification, but I like to keep up with what's happening. And I just glanced down. I hadn't had a chance to take it with me to look at it yet, and I saw, now I don't remember the exact wording of the front page, but it was saying that these were the top ten heroes of the faith and future leaders of the charismatic movement in the future, the top ten. Well, I was interested in that, so I picked it up and began to thumb through that and found the section about the top ten charismatic leaders of the future and heroes of the faith of the future. I, I read a little bit about their story and what they were doing and so forth, but to be honest with you, I was not really impressed any whatsoever. And I thought, you know, I can take you to the Bible, the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 11, and I can tell you what the Bible says about the heroes of faith. The Bible said that some of them were sawn asunder. It said some lived in caves. Not the famous uh, fellow you have down here in this part of the Louisiana, the preacher that lives in a 40,000 square foot home. The largest 
private home in the state of Louisiana, the largest preacher's home in the United States of America. They didn't live in that. They lived in caves. The Bible said they had trials of cruel mockings. They wandered around in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, living in deserts. Now, I do I submit to you, I understand that we're living in different times. I don't live in a cave. I, I, I don't wander around in goat skins. I thank God I have got a, a hundred and something dollar Hager suit on this morning. I, uh, I, I, listen, I, I'm not going hungry, you can see. And uh, I haven't been beaten with cruel mockings yet, but I'm just telling you that our understanding about the heroes of faith have been twisted in this day. But there are people in our world that have been tried and tested. I've met those in China, young ladies who are evangelists there, and uh, their, their testimonies would break your heart. And I talked with them, and they shared with me how that some had spent two years or more in prison for preaching Christ. There were some that had their legs broken while in, in prison because they would not renounce Him. There were some of those precious young ladies there, their testimony, they were forced to drink their own urine or eat their own human waste because they loved Jesus Christ and preached Christ. I have never suffered such as they. But there's something about suffering that the humanness and every one of us rejects. We don't like to think about suffering even for Christ. And I've learned in my time in Israel that the main reason there that the religious leaders in Jesus' day rejected Him as Messiah, it is because they could not and would not accept a suffering Savior. They could not accept a suffering Messiah. Their ideal of a, of a Messiah was one that would quickly rise up, raise up an army, overthrow the Romans, give them their country back, and make everything well and okay. They failed to read the writings of their own beloved prophet when the prophet said in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, He is despised and rejected of men. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and, and we despised and esteemed him not. He's a man that bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet... We did a stream him smit, stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But thank God he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. By whose stripes we are healed. Hallelujah. It is because of a suffering Messiah you and I sit here at First New Testament Pentecostal Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana this morning because of His suffering and trying. But He said, if you're going to reign with Me, you're going to suffer with Me. And Paul said, I want to know Him in the power of the resurrection, but I also understand that I must know Him in His sufferings as well. There's things that we overlook that we need to look at again in Scripture. I'm convinced that the church has never understood the depth of Calvary. We look at it. We see a man hanging on a cross we know to be the Son of God, the Lamb of God. But I'm not sure that we fully understand the true cost of redemption. I'm afraid that we overlook the overlooked things. And what seemed insignificant in that we missed the greatest aspect of His suffering at all. I also believe that the only way to know God the Father in a deeper way is that we understand more of what happened there in that, on that cross and in that setting there at Calvary. He suffered pain. I shared with you what a couple of years ago in my part of the preaching of the Encouraged Conference about the Gethsemane and what happened the night before Calvary. Yes, he, he suffered pain, folks, beyond our comprehension. 
But there's something there. There's some things that we miss about God. When I've made all those statements about our understanding of God has somehow been shaped and formed. Mine was. I was brought up in a very old traditional Pentecostal church. And, and I know there were many people there that loved the Lord. But it was a mindset. Our thinking was formed and shaped and molded for all of those years. They, theirs was before me, and theirs was before them. And so by the time it got to me in my generation, our whole thinking about God was in a certain form. That's the reason that we're struggling in these days of the end. That is the reason it is hard to bring the church into a culture of the end time. Now, I did that's not original with me, but someone brought that to my attention recently. A culture of the end of days. We're going to come in and into that culture and understand it or else. And one way to come into the culture of the end of days is to know the God of the Bible in a way that we have not ever seen the God of the Bible nor understood this God before. Little simple things that are not simple at all, that are in not that are significant, but we think them insignificant. And let me share this with you, and I won't tarry long, but I'm going to drop it and leave it. You know, we all know that Jesus Christ was fully God. Is that right? you got to believe that to be saved. He was God in the flesh. He, he lived in that heavenly world before there was a sun, moon, and stars. In fact, the Bible said everything that was made was made by Him. And there was not anything that was made that was not made without Him. I'm telling you that the one hanging on that cross that day was God in the flesh. There's no other way around it. We just You say, can you fully explain uh, the Godhead if I could? I'd be a part of them. And people that try to do that, you know, I just kind of look at them with my, my little smirk, you know, and think, go ahead. You, you know, there's no, you don't. I just know this, that that was God. That was God that they lay that wooden beam upon His shoulder to carry toward that uh, place of, of crucifixion that day. That was the God of the Bible that they took their fingers and plucked the beard out of his face and spit. They, can you imagine that? They spit in the face of the Creator of heaven and earth. That was God that they nailed his hands and feet upon that wooden cross and then let it go into the ground with a, with a dull thump. And every joint in his body shook and, and uh, he, it was God hanging there and all the pain. We know that. But we, did we ever think about this at all? I may have mentioned this in preaching before, but did you know that, that, uh, the Romans, the Romans, they never put loincloths on their crucified victims? Oh, I didn't, I expected that look. Never. Never. Artists do. Da Vinci, others. Hollywood producers do when they make a movie, but not the Romans. They hung God on a cross as naked as the day He came into this earth in the form of a little baby. What does that have to do anything with anything, preacher? It has everything to do with everything. What kind of a God is it that would allow Himself, the Creator of heaven and earth, would allow Himself to be humiliated in front of all? His mother was standing out there. His sisters in the flesh were out there. The Sanhedrin, other leaders, you know, the Pharisees and others were standing out there gawking at God in the flesh, hanging on a cross without a loincloth, and humiliated before all that was there. That was God. That is a God that we don't, we don't understand that. How can God allow that? We always think of God. They've got a little loincloth. But how can we think of God being humiliated? Well, we better know this God in the future. We better know a God that allowed Himself to be humiliated before the crowd there that day. 
And you know, we think about, and I just shared with it in the gathering there in Spain, about Moses and about how it took 40 years to get Moses out of Moses. And, and it's wonderful. And we, we call that deep. And it is. And it's a great, it's a great thing to share with the people and, and, and the ministers and so forth. And there's some wonderful things of there. But the revelation, the revelation about Moses and 40 years in that desert is not, the revelation is not so much about Moses. The revelation is about God. Because did you did you ever think about how that in 40 years... Now, you know, let me back up. If, if, it, if I'd been God, the day that Moses rose up and slew that Egyptian, I mean, he's, a, he's in his prime. He's 40 years old. He knows prob- probably every known major language in the world. He has been to the universities of Egypt. He probably has a physique like a warrior. They say, the historians say that the Egyptians loved him. And here this man Moses, an intellectual, and I doubt very seriously he was stuttering at the time of of this. But this Moses was a man that I would say, if I was God, all right, buddy, now is the time. You, You get everybody together, line them up, we're going to get out of here. But no, not God. Moses slew the Egyptian, rose up, looked this way and that way, but he never looked up. And God had to take him to the backside of the desert. But the revelation is not about Moses. The revelation is about God because for 40 years, anybody 40 years old here this morning or real close? 40 years, 40 years, God let nearly, possibly nearly a million People, Hebrews, die. For 40 more years, God allowed all of these Hebrews to stay in slavery, to suffer persecution and beatings, to be slaves for four more decades. Forty years of death and suffering, God allowed that while He dealt with one stuttering man on the backside of a desert trying to get Moses out of Moses. But yet God, the God that allowed that, He never one time thought that a waste. He never one time thought that unfair. He never one time thought that unjust. What kind of a God does that? Our God did Do you know that God? Be quiet. Our, our God did that. That wasn't somebody else's God. That's our God. We focus more Moses, but that's not, no, no. God allowed that to happen. God did. Have you ever thought about, anybody ever read about much about John the Baptist? Jesus said there was no man born of a woman like John ever. That's, that's the words of Jesus. And Jesus came down the path one day, and John looks up, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I'm talking about knowing God, the God of the Bible in the days ahead, folks. We better know God like this, that allowed, I'm going to back up, that allowed 40 years of suffering, who allowed 40 years of folks dying, who allowed 40 years of people staying in bondage so that He can deal and work His way in one man for the greater good of the future. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he looks up, the Lamb of God. Here he is. Now, you know, I've been to where John baptized. I've been to both the baptismal places, but I've been to where they say they know. Even the Israeli government knows where John baptized. It's really muddy. It's a desert. It's a wilderness. And right now, either side of it, they're landmines. They got it all blocked off. But you can go there. And I've been there. I've baptized folks there. John was out in this desert, in this wilderness, and Jesus comes, and he's got teams of disciples. 
And he has a following. There's thousands upon thousands gathered out there every day hearing John preach the words of the kingdom. Even though Herod came riding by in his chariot one day, and John looked up and saw him and recognized him and yelled out, You can't have your brother's wife! Herod never forgot that. And so when Jesus steps out of the water and begins to depart, they go to following Jesus. The crowd begins to dissipate. They start up the trail after Jesus. The thousands begin to follow. John said, he's the Lamb of God. And John's disciples begin to follow him. And somebody said, John, what do you think about this? And he said, I, I must decrease. He must increase. So after this, I mean, everybody's gone. Maybe that's what gave Herod the, the, the encouragement to move when he did because everybody's following Jesus now. So he sends somebody to arrest John, and they bring him and put him in prison. Now John's in jail. He's not down by the river of Jordan with tens of thousands of people there to hear him preach and soldiers and so forth. And he's no, no, disciple teams. He's there in a lonely jail cell now by himself. And so one day a group of his disciples come to visit John and, and, and see how he was doing. And he said, hey, go ask him this. Go ask him, are you the one or do we look for another? Now he's the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But now he's, he's questioning because you know why? He's not down by the riverside with thousands now. He's in jail. Folks, there's a time coming that we may not be gathered in this beautiful building here and rejoicing and feeling the presence of God and all these wonderful things. It, it may get really tough for us here. Oh, you said, no, we're in America. They go to ask Jesus, and they say, Are you the one? John wants to know. Or do we look for another? And all, all those years of preaching, I always thought Jesus answered John because he did some miracles. But I look back at it, and I realize he never really answered him at all. He never said yes. He never said no. He just opened the eyes of some blind folks, raised the dead, healed people. And you say, well, that, no, listen. Prophets in the Old Testament did that. They raised the dead. They prayed for people. Miracles took place. Fire fell from heaven. You know, all types of miracles. He never said yes. He never said no. But if anybody deserved an answer, I'm telling you it was John the Baptist. If anybody deserved to know, yes, I am the Messiah, and hear those very words out of the Son of God, he's in prison, he, he's about to face death, and he needs some encouragement. But Jesus sends his disciples back and said, You go tell John, blessed is he who's not offended in me, scandalizo. It means to entice to sin, the cause to fail. You go tell John, don't let the devil entice you now to have doubt and unbelief. This is Brother John we're talking about here. John just wants to know a simple answer to a simple question. And Jesus never answered. But Jesus knew as well as anybody he deserved it. He was his cousin. Jesus knew what John had sacrificed for the kingdom of God more than anybody. Jesus knew that John the Baptist, you know, he was the son of a priest. He could have been living in a priestly home, a beautiful home there close to the temple. But no, not, not John. John lived out there in the caves of that wilderness area there in Israel. He gave all of that up. John could have been a priest himself. He was the son of a priest. He could have wore those beautiful robes that the priests wear, maybe even those pretty stones in the breastplate of that. He could have been a high priest one day, but, but no, John's out there in camel's hair, wearing a girdle of camel's hair, because John gave everything up to preach the kingdom of God. Everything. 
John could have been eat, he could have been eating the best of the meat that came out of the pots from the sacrifice when the hook went in and pulled it up for the priests, the Levites to eat. He could have been eating the best tenderloin, but not John the Baptist. He gave all of that up. So he ate locusts and wild honey out there in that desert. I'm just saying, John gave everything up. And Jesus knew that he just wanted an answer. He wanted a yes or a no. He deserved it. Jesus knew that that John the Baptist would never, never be able to walk down the little trail at night or through a street there in Jerusalem and hold a wife's hand and kiss her goodnight. John gave that up for the kingdom of God. Jesus knew that John would never know what it's like to hold a little baby, his own little baby boy or baby girl in his arms and rock it to sleep and put it in a little wooden cradle there in a home and kiss it goodnight. And John would never know that because John gave everything away, everything. He sacrificed it all for the kingdom of God. And now all John wants is a simple yes or no. But John died without an answer. What kind of a God, what kind of a loving, merciful God would allow that or do that? Our God did. I I, I didn't know. You better know in the days ahead. Because in the days ahead, as we face things that are coming that we've never had to face in all of our lives as Christians, as American Christians, and, and our world is turned upside down, and we've lived for Jesus and loved the Lord, paid tithe, given to the mission key work, and, and we've come to the house of God, been here for prayer, all of these things, and then things go wrong, and man, we're saying, God, uh, what's, what's going on here? The heavens seem silent, and our world's turned upside down. They're passing laws against us in the church, and they're, 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 they're telling us they're going to imprison our pastor if he preaches against moral sin and these things. that They pass law. They call it hate speech, and God tell us they're not going to allow us back in the church. And, and, and the, why, why are you not answering? We better know this God. What if He doesn't answer? What if He lets us walk through times of sorrow and persecution and attacks upon us for Christian living and loving God? What if we come down in our lives to where that we're in a, in, in our world's turned upside down, we're in a situation, maybe a personal situation, and we're praying and the heavens seem silent to us and, 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 and we're, we're put in this place and it's like, okay, God, I, I, I don't want to be bitter, but I'm going to be bitter. I don't want to be angry, but I'm going to be angry. Really? No, no, you got to know the God of the Bible. Sometimes He does not act the way that we just know He's going to act. Sometimes He does not do just what we think or thought He would do. Sometimes He has let hundreds of thousands of Hebrews suffer and stay in slavery and some even die because He has a plan for the future. He looks beyond the short term. He's dealing with a man. He's dealing with an individual for the long term. And he thinks it not a waste, unjust nor unfair. Have I preached out of the Bible? Have I said something that's not true? we got to know. God and the days ahead. You see why. I don't struggle with the message. I don't struggle with the call, but I struggle with the heaviness of it all. I don't like the, when the heaviness comes and the people look at me like, you have just shocked me 
I've never been shocked in my life. Gotta know this God. In these last days, it's not our traditional thinking that's going to get us through. We're not going to be able to face what's coming unless we really get in the presence of God. Not just here on Sunday morning. And as wonderful as it is, thank God that you that do come back to pray, not just Sunday night prayer. Things have changed, folks. It's different. I'm going to close. I uh, The first time I was in China was 1997. Brother V.H. and I and Sister Clendenin, there were some other folks in the family that went. And we flew in from Hong Kong, and we had some materials for the School of Christ. We were taken into China. And uh, I'd, we just smuggled them in, to be honest with you. And I was a nervous wreck going through the airport. But someone had given me a piece of paper with a name on it and a phone number. And they said, call this man. This particular person gave to him. He lived there for years. He was in the States. He said, call him. He could speak really good English. He was raised up in a missionary school before communism took over. So he had to be old. And he'll meet, he'll meet with you. And, I, and so I, I had no idea. At the hotel, Brother B.H. says, call that number. Tell that brother we want to meet with him. So I didn't have a clue that this man, that all the years prior to that, every time an American president went to China on a state visit, they all wanted to meet with him, whether it was uh, Mr. Clinton or maybe Mr. Bush, others prior to that, uh, Bush Sr., I should say, Reagan, whoever, but they would put him under house arrest and wouldn't let him meet with the presidents. But we weren't presidents, and I didn't have enough sense to know that, so I just called up on the phone and said, Hey, can you come to the hotel? And he said, I'll be right there. He was 83 years old. His name was Alan Yuan. He told us his testimony. I still have it today. I filmed it with a little camera in my hand. I have it on a DVD now, but it's amazing. He said, when I was a young Christian, I had five young children. My wife and I were taking care also of my, my mother. at Chinese tradition culture, taking care of my elder mother. But he said, one day I was arrested for preaching Jesus Christ, and I was sent to prison up north near the Russian border for 21 years and eight months for preaching Jesus for 21 years and eight months, he said, my wife raised our five small children and took care of my elderly mother. When they found out on the jobs where she would work that I was a Christian and in prison for Christ, they would fire her. She'd have to go get another job, and she keep, would keep having to move around. But she had to raise them by herself. For 21 years and eight months in that prison, it was cold in the winter and hot in the summer. The food was horrible. It was up near the Russian border, and I was sick often. For 21 years and eight months, I never met one other Christian. Not one. For 21 years and eight months, I never had a Bible to read. I just quoted Scripture I had memorized as a young believer. For 21 years and eight months, I, I never had a songbook. I would sing the songs that I'd learned in the church. And after 21 years... In eight months, when Dean came to power in China, they looked at my record, reported to him, and he said, Oh, he's so old now, he won't bother anybody. Turn him loose. And he said, They turned me loose. And he said, That day when my feet hit the street, I went to preach in Jesus. And he was 83 years old, and he said, A little over a week ago, I baptized 300 young people, new young converts in Christ in water. last time I saw him was nearly 90 years of age. But what kind of a God allows 
a preacher who loves him and preaching the gospel with five little kids and an elderly mother. What kind of a God allows that man to go to prison for 21 years and eight months? Our God did. And finally, I never met George Chen, but I talked to him on the phone. He's another Chinese pastor, George Chen. When he was arrested, he had three house churches in their city with 100 people each in each house church, 300 total. He left his Bible behind. He was arrested and sent to prison for 18 years. He said he was there seven years. His wife died right after he was arrested, but they didn't tell him. For seven years, he didn't even know his wife had died. And then his son died. They didn't tell him. George Chen said they put eight men in a two-man cell. One commode in it. It overflowed every night. Flooded. But he said we would take shifts in sleeping because you said you could touch one side of that wall to the other if you stretch your hands out. And so two would lay down for two hours and two would rotate and rotate. He said when we got there, they told us if you speak to each other, if you speak to a guard, if you speak at all, you're a dead man. We'll take you out and, mur- and shoot you. He said, for the first 12 years, I never heard the sound of my own voice. But he said, after 12 years, they came to me and said, George Chen, you're going to get to go outside and work and do outside duty and work out. And he said, thank God. To himself, in his heart, he said, thank God, I'll get to get some fresh air and I'll be able to be outside. He hadn't been outside in 12 years. But when he got out there and realized what it was, they gave him a rake and a shovel. And his job was to clean out those open ponds of cesspool, the open pits of human waste from the prison. He had to clean that every day. He said, when I first stepped out there, he said, I've got the dry heaves. And he said, I thought to myself, and he said, all of a sudden I, I yelled out with my voice, God, I cannot bear this. He said, for the first time in 12 years, I heard the sound of my own voice. And he said, then I turned the cesspool into a sanctuary. And I began to worship and praise and magnify God. But after 18 years, they tell him, you're going to get to go home. You're going to be released. So he sends a letter back to the city from where he's from. And he didn't know if anyone would be there, if there were any Christians, if anyone would come to meet him. He just sent a letter. But when he gets there on the train, I may have the time in a little off, been a long time since I talked to him. But when he got there on the train, we'll say it was 8 o'clock in the morning, when he steps out off onto the platform, there were 5,000 Chinese believers in Christ waiting on him. He began to weep, and the pastor that was there then came up to him, and he said to the pastor, George Chen, said, where did all of these people come from? He said, oh, Pastor Chen, they've been here since 4 o'clock this morning waiting on you. He said, when you were arrested, you left your Bible behind, but we quoted it by, we, we copied it by hand, word by word. We copied it, the Bible, and 5,000 people have come to know Christ because of your Bible. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. But I said all of that to say, what kind of a God would allow that? A man to spend 18 years in prison for Jesus and didn't even know about his wife dying, his son dying. In a two-man cell with eight men, he couldn't speak. And then he gets cesspool duty for six years. What kind of a God our God. Our God. He says he's a Chinese Christian, brother. That's right. It's true. 
I were a prophet, I would prophesy to you this morning until the return of the Lord in this country. There will be days like you will not have ever thought possible facing the the Christian here until the trump of God sounds. The political arena is not the Savior of this nation. It has become an idol, and we have committed idolatry with that. I believe in voting, folks, and I didn't intend to say this, but we have committed idolatry because we've expected men and a man or men to save us in this nation. But our only hope is faith in God. To know Him in suffering. Would you stand?